City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Okay, City Limits, and it's uh, a new month. It's the month of August, and so we have, I think being August, of course, we have our august regular guest, John McPherson, with us today. We're, um, as usual, we're recording from our homes with this ridiculous period we're going through. Well, not ridiculous, it's just bloody tragic. But City Limits Day, John, of course, our monthly expert on transport, who comes in to talk about, believe it or not, transport. I'm Kevin Healy. We've got Karina. Meg's not available today. And John... um, the um, transport is, um, well, got any comments on transport before we, we'll get onto it later more, but uh, <laughs> at this stage. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I was thinking of the irony that um, because of the dis- social distancing issues, you know, and people having to spread out on trams, trains and buses, uh, that means the, the government is keeping the services running at a higher level than their instincts would tell them, you know, because they hate running more public transport than they absolutely have to. But in fact, they do have to run more public transport at the moment just to ensure the uh, social distancing. Yeah, I'll come to that later. That's, that's an item I actually have the right to discuss later, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's one of the ironies of the current situation. I'll leave you with that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Um, look, just a, um, a reflection on the, on the United States president we had, in the last couple of weeks, we've had our treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, tell us how much he admires Reagan and, uh, and Thatcher economics, the, those who introduced neoliberal economics to the world, and it was followed up enthusiastically here by Hawke and Keating, of course. But the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and, and Institute, now I'm not sure what you'd want to keep of Ronald Reagan, but anyway, um, the Trump campaign... Steady on there, steady on. But the Trump campaign has has a fundraising appeal, uh, Trump Make America Great Again Committee, a joint effort of the Trump campaign and the RNC, which is the Republican National Committee, and they're offering two commemorative coins, one engraved with Reagan's image and the other with Trump. He modestly puts his own image on. And anyone who donates more than $63 Australian uh, can get one uh, as a fundraiser but the foundation has put its foot down and said, you didn't ask us and we don't want you to use our name. <laughs> Even they've turned on poor Donald. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. There's, it does even, as you say, there does even seem to be a bit of resistance building up in the Republican Party against Donald. And I, I, I just read somewhere that uh, his, um, when he gets re-nominated for, for president for his second term, that's all going to be done in private. It's usually done out in public with everybody cheering, but this time it's going to be done very quietly. Surprise, <laughs> <laughs> surprise. Yes, um, it's, it's not going well for Paul Donald, but it, uh, you know, I reckon in many, in some ways, another four years of him would be quite wonderful because I think he could really stuff the place up completely in four year, four more years. But the only minor problem, as I see in that four years, is World War Three, John, which could be a problem. <laughs> yes. Well, that's right. I'm going to pour some tea. Listen to this. Here's the tea. This is white okay. tea, John. The one you like. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Thank you for the. There we go. Okay, just done. For that nice mild white tea, I love it. Now we've had we've 
Sorry, John, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say, I've got a bit of coffee here this morning, so on we uh, go. Coffee this morning? Ah, yes. Yeah, on we go. That's right, as opposed to cough, I hope, because that would that might be dangerous. Um, Probably have one of those too, yeah. Mm, yes. Now, I think there are some pretty serious consequences of the COVID virus. I mean, we know that, and we've seen it in the last few days as we get, but there's going to be more clampdowns today, apparently, announced. Yeah. But... The worst case is, and this was a headline in the Financial Review on Tuesday of last week, second wave could be worse for local equities. Oh. So I think once it starts to attack local equities, John, it's getting really serious, much more, much more <laughs> serious than the health consequences, surely. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, you will read the Financial Review, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, though, there, last week there was also a meeting with um, the Indigenous Affairs Minister Wyatt and and the and a, an Indigenous group closing the gap group, um, which met and drew up these new plans to close the gap, and they've all said how wonderful it is. And Pat Turner was the leader of the the groups that uh, met with him and said more than 4,000 Indigenous Australians have contributed to the reset, which includes 16 new targets on life expectancy, health, education, employment, out-of-home care and traditional languages. The national agreement may not include everything our people want or need to make lasting change to our, to our lives, but this is a huge step forward. But that last point was picked up by other groups and the Change the Record group, which is another Indigenous group, and its co-chair, Cheryl Axelby, said the new justice targets would not deliver change within current lifetimes. For too long, our people have been forced into the quicksand of the criminal legal system by discriminatory laws, discriminatory policy and systematic disadvantage and poverty. Governments had an opportunity in the new Closing the Gap Agreement to give our young people a future Instead, they've chosen lazy politics over the lives and futures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples. The new targets call for the rate of incarcerated Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adults to fall by at least 15% by 2031, and for the rate of children aged 10 to 17 to fall by 15%. Now, that 15% yeah. in the next 10 years isn't going to be, isn't really a massive target, I wouldn't have thought. No. Uh, no, it seems it seems very very mod moderate <laughs> to put it. And there's also cuts in out of out of uh, home care, etc. Change the record, slam the delay by first law officers, senior Indigenous leaders, including well, you know Noel Pearson, who's you know seen to be on the conservative side of Indigenous yeah. affairs. Professor Megan Davis and Roy Archie said the Coalition of Peaks group lacked a mandate, that's the group that met with the government, right. and therefore does not represent the views of Indigenous Australians. Uh, they go right. on to say, yeah, anyway, it's, um, it's the, the old story and you're getting the same sort of phrases. Uh, uh, the Victorian Minister Gabriel Williams said, our collective track record on closing the gap falls short of expectations at time we did something different. For the first time, Aboriginal community, and you know, this is all going to happen, but we've heard that so many times. Um, so yep. we'll see what happens. But interestingly enough, that story appeared in what the aforementioned Financial Review. Yeah. But the, the Herald Sun ran a story on the same thing, mm. in which all it did was quote the minister and the and Pat Turner, blacks, um, etc. So they. So the Herald Sun story didn't mention any of the criticism that came from the other groups at all. 
in its coverage of it. So right. that's interesting, isn't it? So it just, um, yeah, just stuck to the um, the uh, very mainstream. Yeah. Yes, and it's. I suppose it shows what what you read is what you uh, you know the different news angles you get because, as I say, at least the other paper quoted those people opposed to the whole thing and, and criticising it, but not one bit of criticism in the Herald Sun story, just how good it was. Well, I don't know whether the Nash 9 newspapers, The Age, the Age, and, and etc., covered it at all. I don't recall seeing anything. Well, the, the Fin Review is one of the nine papers, so it did. Oh, yeah. sorry, it is, isn't it? Yeah, big part. I, I always, yeah, I yeah. always um, forget that and think it's um, really... That's a, right. Ex-Fairfax, now one of them. That's right, yeah. It's philosophy, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But one of the two regular, very, very conservative Herald Sun writers mm -hmm. uh, wrote a piece really attacking the whole thing and how awful, you know, how terrible it is that the Aboriginal communities are like they are, the usual racist rubbish. Yeah. And it led, to an in, it led to an entire column of letters from Herald Sun readers, absolutely racist attacks and, and most dreadful bloody comments. It's awful. So they were basically agreeing with the already bad... Um Commentary and uh, and and um, upping upping it, making it worse by the sound of it. Yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah, well, look, the the figures on on incarceration are just so staggering, staggeringly bad compared with the rest of society. I, you've got to, you know, there should be an emergency declared in this area, really. And the fact that it's thirty years since that royal commission into deaths in custody. And, and and the situation hasn't improved either in either in deaths in custody or in incarceration. It's it's no, not not at all. And in fact, the the, the point you just raised, uh, one of the racist letters in the Herald Sun said the reverse. It said Aboriginal deaths in custody often used per capita of Australian population, which conflates the rate of Aboriginal incarceration with the deaths in custody. When quoted on a per capita of inmates basis, the rate of Aboriginal deaths is, if anything, lower than non-Indigenous, which is a pretty dreadful letter. But also, I think there should be no deaths in custody. I'm thinking, you know, not not saying, no, well, no. there's more 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 of them than more mm. of them. Therefore, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it seems seems to be a staggering situation that just continues to grind on and and. And um, you know the 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 incarceration rates, at least, seem to show that nothing is improving. No, the figures are, the figures are speak for themselves. I think they're pretty yeah, pretty yeah, damning. Yeah. It's bloody awful. I was just going to say, even here in Victoria, where we used to be quite moderate in our incarceration rates of the population in general, of course, we've got more much harsher over the last decade or so, um, maybe two decades. And of course, it would be Aboriginal people who who mainly suffered from that um, increased rates of incarceration. But we're, we're providing uh, work and, and profits for the private companies that run the prisons, John. So um, yeah, there's always a bright side to everything, really, isn't there? Uh, well, there are certainly plenty of um, commentators who now agree the private privatisation of jails is a uh, is a ridiculous thing. To Disaster. Disastrous. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of uh, such things, um, last week three coppers faced court. You remember that? We all yes. saw it on telly. I think that awful situation where a bloke who was uh, physically and mentally unwell dragged him out of his house on the front veranda and they sprayed him and hit him with um, with water hose and kicked him, etc. Uh, <clears throat> oh, yes, I remember. And they, they hit court last week. And um, Brad McLeod was the main offender, she said, and this is the magistrate. 
but without the trio had contested the allegations, claiming they were performing their police duties when they pepper sprayed, punched and hosed the man, only known as John, in the face at his Preston home in September 17. Um, the magistrate found Edney guilty of assault with a weapon for his actions in whacking the victim six times with his extendable baton and assault by stepping on the man's head. McLeod was found guilty of three counts of assault by striking the man to the stomach with a fist, capsicum spraying his face and encouraging Hilgart, the other one of the other coppers, to put a high-pressure hose on the man's face so he could film it. Miss Lambie, the magistrate, said Hilgart was guilty of assault for his inhumane spraying of water into John's face as if washing a car. The magistrate um, said she was horrified by CCTV footage of six policemen restraining the vulnerable victim in his front yard. It is not because it is criminal behaviour, but it is terrible, terrible to watch. John was physically and mentally unwell. He was also withdrawing from opioids when they offended against him. He was outnumbered by six armed officers and he was either on the ground or restrained by handcuffs during the assaults. He was also affected by capsicum spray. She said the community expected more from its serving police officers. They committed crimes that they are entrusted by the community to detect and control. Their offences breach the public trust which the community places in police. Now, after all that, you'd think, well, they probably went off to jail, didn't they? It's, uh, uh, but uh, in fact, they, there was no conviction recorded. Mm. They, got, they got fined. One got fined 3500 and a couple of others 1000 and they promised to be of good behaviour for a year and not bash anyone else for a year, apparently. But um, they, the bloke was a disability pensioner, of course, and they fined without conviction. She said that the court had little work to do in imposing a penalty that would deter the three from any future offending as they had been punished by their suspension from duty. They were suspended with pay, so for God's sake. Um, their involvement in lengthy criminal proceedings, unflattering media attention, and the prospect of disciplinary action by their employer. My God, this is so. You know, that, now I raise that because the Herald that's back in the Herald Sun on page uh, twenty. Right. If that had been another case where if you reverse the situation in some way, yeah. like when the cases involving the four coppers who were killed on the road recently hit court, it'll be all over the front page, and they'll be screaming. You know. They, there's no, uh, not, not the usual argument here about going soft on crime because these three got off and uh, not even a conviction recorded. But in, it, this is a paper that regularly in these sort of cases gets, puts it on the front page and screams that we're going soft on crime. Yes. So I just thought that was an interesting, uh, yep. interesting comparison. Do you think that the magistrate explained why she, she didn't... Um Give them, well, I suppose she she gave her reasons why she didn't want to give them custodial sentences. Mm. But um, I don't know the whole the whole event was pretty extreme. I mean, you know, you know. very extreme. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, as she as the magistrate says, once he's subdued and on the ground and handcuffed, what, why do you have to proceed any further with um, any sort of attack? Yeah. Given the Herald Sun wouldn't say it, John, I th I'm going to say on this program that I think they should have been slotted, those ones. I'm not, I'm not a great fan of prisons, but I think those three, um, I'm prepared to let it slide on that one. It did, yeah. it did seem to be, to be, the whole thing seems to be done in a sort of a gleeful way that they had a, um, they had a victim that they could uh, really, really have some fun with. That's, that's, that's how it looked to the casual observer. 
Yeah, it was fun, 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 wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Well, as they said, you know, he 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 hit him with the water hose to to, to for the other bloke to enjoy. <laughs> we what a what a great sense of humour. And once once again, um, CCTV, um, you know, did provide some um, context for the whole the whole business. Thankfully. Uh, yes, it did. It did. That's right. Mm. Yes. Mm. I'll just because um, we're getting the time. I have other things there, but I, I want to go on to one particular item. I think that given that we heard Frydenberg extolling the virtues of Thatcher Reaganomics, yeah. the, there are three three of the key mantras of neoliberal economics are one, you privatise any government service that makes any sort of profit at all. Yes. Second, secondly, you contract out government services because it's so much more efficient if you don't employ public servants but give it to the, the big companies to run. And thirdly, of course, they crushed the unions and made and bought in, you know, they led to what we now see with the gig economy, part-time and casual work, people not getting enough money from any one job, etc. And And that those three factors have played a key role in what's happening with the COVID virus here. Yeah. The, the privatisation of nursing homes and the fact that therefore the private owners are not employing enough people and enough qualified people to run the places properly mm-hmm. with staff who are underpaid and therefore have to go to work and often have to go to work in more than one place. And of course, the contracting out of the security at the at the um, hotels, oh, the quarantine, quarantine hotels. hotels. Mm. Now, those three factors have played a key role and I think in, in many, not in many ways, in every way, exposed the fallacies of neoliberal economics. Yep, um, that's that's it's it's been a, a fascinating learning experience for the whole world, really, <laughs> and um, it sort of shows that the uh, the idea that there is such a thing as society, even 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 um, Scott Morrison would agree with that now. I think that you, you have to have something called society to, uh, to deal with these um, event, events, particularly at church on Sunday, John. <laughs> Yes, if you're allowed to go to church, of course. Oh, of course he can't go at the moment, can he? No, no I think, no, I think they're probably doing it on, on Zoom like a lot of other people, yeah. Yeah, his, his spiritual life is suffering. Oh, I bet. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's um, interesting times, all right. Yeah, and, and interestingly also, um, one of the neoliberal writers for the Philippine Review, James Thompson, read an article Age care heartbreak demands real reform, and he's fairly, he's quite critical of, of of the way they're operating. Yeah, and he's and he says, talking about one veteran aged care nurse says carers are generally dedicated, hardworking people, but they're doing physically and mentally demanding jobs with minimal qualifications and very little additional training that might prepare them for a crisis like this. The poor pay levels mean there's no encouragement for carers to make a career in aged care, and the industry is suffering because of it. He, in fact, at the end, he reckons they should be um, they should increase the wage levels and finding ways to make working in aged care a viable, well-paid career should be near-term priority, which is fair enough. But he also, back to the usual, having privatised them and they're supposed now to be efficient and make profit, he says, we'll need to face up to the realities of funding, providing the level of care our elderly deserve is expensive and will become more so. Government funding will need to increase and residents will need to pay more where they can if we are to provide the sort of facilities we need and staff them with engaged, qualified and supported workers who feel secure in their jobs, which is all very good. But 
But here we have the privatisation of these groups and now we're saying when they're in trouble, the government should once again start funding them, mm. which could be an argument for saying, why doesn't the government just take them all over again? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, it's a bit like the, the situation with public transport where we have these these operators brought in, the private operators, and the, that's convenient for the, for the government because there's somebody else to blame when things go wrong in the public transport system. So, you know, it's it's not hard to see that the same sort of effects happen in the um, aged care industry as well, that government puts these things at arm's length when they can, where they can, and that, and that um, you know, in normal circumstances leaves the government off the hook. Um, but, of course, it makes it harder for the government to, um, to intervene when they have to intervene, as we're seeing right now, because the government doesn't have the ability or the, you know, or the, um, or the experience to, um, to, to deal with the situation. And apparently government-run, I don't know if there's too many left, but government-run nursing homes and aged mm -hmm. care facilities do have adequate staff and they haven't suffered like the private sector has in this thing. So. Well, we're told, we're told that's the situation in Victoria, that there are more government-run nursing homes here, apparently, than most other states. And so the situation would have been, would have been worse here if the... Um, if, if, if there'd been more private nursing homes, yeah. So it's, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, I mean, that article I just quoted from yeah, uh, sure. Thompson, at no point, though, refers to the privatisation as being a problem. Oh, no, no. Uh, and indeed, the, the Herald Sun had a two- or three-page special last week, special investigation into aged care shame, uh, which was a much more shallow article, naturally, being in the Herald Sun. But yep. it it at no point mentions privatisation either as, as as the guts of the problem. But anyway... Uh, oh, well, it couldn't couldn't possibly because that would be the... No. Because of the uh, interests of the Murdoch family, which no doubt are very extensive across so many sectors. A thing that occurred to me was, you know, that the, the staff of nursing homes are mainly female. And it's... And uh, I, I don't know, to, to some degree, I think, we're relying on the goodwill of generally, you know, well-disposed women to um, to keep these places going. You know, w without without with an without the staff having enough support, without enough staff, you know, all the things. You know, yep. We're we're relying on goodwill to keep these things going, and of course, goodwill for the owners result. You know, it means greater profits. They would see it that way, anyhow. Yeah. That's right. You run them with the with the most skeletal staff you possibly can, and mm. perhaps the most unqualified, which is not the staff's problem, but um, it becomes a problem in moments like this, of course. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, Estia Health, which is one of them, and it's had a couple of places taken over by government because they're going so badly. Yeah. <laughs> and incredibly, the day after they <laughs> the day after they were taken over. The headline: Estia Health shares rise despite aged care crisis. So, the, the shareholders are making more money. It's wonderful. Yeah, well, yeah, well, a more predictable income stream, perhaps. Yeah. Hey, Kevin, I think we need to take a bit of a break here. Move on, make a break. I agree with you. I'm about to say, let's take a break, <laughs> and we'll come back, and we'll even talk some transport, John. I think we should. <laughs> okay. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. 
If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Okay, back on City Limits and it's Transport uh, Day. John, and you raised a matter earlier about the fact that uh, the fact that they're having to put run more trains because of the because of the mm. coronavirus and the need for for distancing. And in fact, they did announce. Now, what what's going to happen now? Of course, with the new lockdown and also with the fact that there's a curfew at eight pm. I'm not not sure what that's going to mean. But about two weeks ago, mm-hmm. the government announced. Scores of extra train and tram services will be added to the public transport timetable to allow computers to practice social distancing with 95 weekly train trips to be added to the network. From Monday, which was um, back in the middle of the month, so it's about two Mondays ago, an extra 10 weekly services will each be added to the Sunbury, Craigieburn, Werribee, Mernda, Dandenong, Ringwood and Glen Waverley lines. Commuters on the Hurstbridge line will benefit from another five trips to their service. The new services will be scheduled in the hours before and after Melbourne's peak travel periods in a bid to encourage commuters to spread their journeys throughout the day. It goes on. Uh, Yarra Trans will provide two additional shuttle routes along Collins Street to reduce the risk of overcrowding, which isn't much of a change. Uh, and the Transport Minister said, who is the dinner? Can you name him, by the way, John, the Transport Minister? Transport, no, I, I actually can't. When I saw it, I thought I'll ask John this because I'm sure he, I'm sure no, I, I had no idea this bloke existed until I read this article and it said Public Transport Minister Ben Carroll. Never heard of him. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. I, I, uh, ben Carroll, right, okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, there's been so little talk about anything but the virus for so long now. We've uh, lost our... Lost our grip on the situation, at least I said. We, we have, John. We, <laughs> anyway, Ben said, Ben said, we're giving Victorians the options to travel outside of the traditional peak hours and practice better physical distancing, keeping us all safer. We're grateful to our frontline public transport staff for keeping Victoria moving during the pandemic, which is true. I and mean, they've done a great job. These changes will keep them safer as they do essential work. Another interesting item, though, John, the Department of Transport will also ensure cash payments are permanently removed from buses on July 13, which was Uh, that same week, so it must have been two weeks ago, with Mikey the only method available, 
Right. And during the next 18 months, upgrades will be rolled out to ensure that Victorians can board buses from both front and rear doors rather than being restricted to those closest to the driver. But the fact, you know, at the moment you can't, you can't uh, reload your Mikey, top up your mm-hmm. Mikey on the tram, and now you can't do it on the bus. So it's becoming more difficult in many ways to use the thing. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, the government, the government has worked on the assumption that everybody has a digital life for a long time, really frankly, and, that, and that's part of the reason why the education about the virus situation has been so so patchy, because the government assumes that everybody can go and look at their computer and find out what's happening, and it's just not that easy. Mm. And that's, that's showing up again in their assumptions on, on Mikey. And, of course, they're adding in these extra 10 services a day, you know. Is it 10 services a day that I was talking about or 10 services a week? Um, no, I think it's a day. Scores of no. extra tram. Um, I mean, an extra ten week on no, ten weekly services. Yes, weekly, ten weekly. Well, that's that's one. That's two. That's every, one point something a day. Two every workday. Yeah, two every workday. Yeah, well, that's, that that basically is is their you know their usual pathetic tokenism, <laughs> you know, to to claim that's any sort of improvement, even in the current situations, you know, is is um, is is pure tokenism, really. And, and and given that since then there's been further clampdowns and lockdowns, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, it might be that they'll they'll even start withdrawing all that. Well, I, I think quite likely they'll say, oh, no, we won't go ahead with these so-called improvements. They won't be needed now because because more people will be staying at home and, you know, everybody will be, be home mm. in the after, at 8 o'clock. Um, the, I think they said they were going to continue to run some services after 8 p.m., as you really would have to, because there are workers who are working shifts until, you know, till later in the evening who need to get home. You can't get rid of all services. In fact, they should be running no worse than the normal off-peak services across across all the train lines, tram lines and um, buses, bus services, really. But the, mm. there is really, they really should be criticised if they're starting to cut back on the off-peak services. Mm. Yes, we, we're, of course, about to, we, the upfield line, are about to yeah. um, about to go into the um, the construction stage up further up the line, so they're only going to be running to Anstey um, yes. from, about, from about now, actually. Yes, well, at least you're getting the trains on the, the southern part of the line. Mm. Yeah. We were closed for a number of days last week with no trains at all, Oh, but yeah. that was to do the the work to allow the turnaround at Anstey, of course, yeah. to um to do that. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a bit of bump here from the government. The um, the turn back at Anstey is going to be moved to Coburg when the upgrade is finished further up the line, and that's going to mean Coburg is going to be able to um, be a turn back, a convenient turn back place for for services. And it's already got that facility anyway. Yeah, well, well, hopefully they don't have to do any work there. It's already there. Well, oh, okay. Well, they're talking in their um, they're talking in their bump as if they're going to actually move the turn back for up the line to to Coburg. So basically, what they're yeah. saying really is a temporary turn back's going in at Anstey, and then later on that will be um, the turn back place will go back to Coburg where it's always been. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Well, of course, they've always had the ability to run a better service and turn back every second train at Coburg. <laughs> that, sort <of laughs> thought than, never, that sort of thought never strikes them, John. No, it never does. No, no. <laughs> no, no. It would on, would on other lines that they care about, but 
poor old upfield that doesn't get cared about much. <laughs> you're all too, you're all too pink out there. You're just too pink. You know? That's right. Oh, we we are dreadful people out here. That's right. Yes, but but this the fact that they're putting on air ten extra and it, it, it does show that if they want to pull their finger out, they can do it. <laughs> really? Which which was the well the point you raised earlier that that you know if they if they've shown that they can put extra services on when they feel they, you know, when there's something like this, which makes them feel they should, which means why not do it permanently? Well, they've cut services back and now they're going to add some back, add some back in. Yeah, that's right. Okay. No, it's not, you're not going back to their full timetable per, you know, the full timetable of nine months ago. They're not going back to that. Mm. Uh. Well, it does mention the Frankston, Daniel, Frankston, Sandringham, it says, but Frankston, um, yeah, not sure about Sandringham these days, but Frankston Daniel a ten minute service normally. They said another yes. ten weekly train will be added to both those lines. But yes. is that well, so what you're saying is that they've actually that ten minute service has been cut back in the last few months, presumably. Well I I'm not sure about that, Kevin, but I think it may well have, yes. That they're not they haven't been no, sorry. The ten minute service applies to the off peak. I think it, I think probably that it's certainly the case that they haven't been running their full peak hour services so the 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 services are adding back are adding back in to the peak hour services peak period services and but they still won't bring the peak services up to the level they were at before 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 the virus yeah yeah so we can hope they're running the full off peak service we can just hope they are and we can hope that whenever this whole problem this whole thing gets to an end if it ever does uh, they'll go back to uh, go back to normal. Yeah, well, or even better than normal, maybe, John. Uh, I'd, I'd be surprised if it's better than normal. <laughs> okay, because I think I think they, they're going to be very wary because it's starting to look as if a lot more people are going to work from home on a more regular basis. Mm. And um, if that if people continue to work from home, well, the public transport operators are going to have an excuse to reduce the level of service. Um, but of course, it would be nice to think that, that if that's the case, they could still run the run the say the peak services with the current trains, and the trains wouldn't be over, as overloaded as they normally are in peak hour. That'd be that'd be a magnificent outcome. But um, I, I wait to uh, my cynic, cynical nature tells me that won't be what happens. Yes, that the gov- the government will allow them to keep a, a more limited peak hour service running. And the mm. same applies, you know, right across the rail system and, and the tram system, I suspect. You probably don't actually need a cynical nature to think that, though, John. <laughs> a matter oh, of fact. Government get very hurt when, when commentators, you know, um, accuse them of bad faith. You know, they really... <laughs> well, also, for roads, and again, we're, you know, we're, they yeah. tend to highlight making traffic, road traffic move faster... Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last month, they announced actually at the end of June. So again, I presume this is going to go ahead despite what's happened since. But Melbourne commuters could wipe up to 16 minutes off their travel time under a new plan to ease congestion. The city's high traffic areas will be targeted in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic to make it easier for people and freight to get around. The government on Monday, which was about three weeks ago, announced a 340 million plan to keep the city moving after seeing only a 17% drop in road traffic, although I think that would have dropped since. This was despite directions to stay at home from health authorities. The five-year blitz will include better time, better live travel time data and more traffic response teams in three key zones across the city's west, south, east and east 
Suburbs including Werribee, Berwick and Glen Waverley will save an average of six minutes during peak hour and up to 16 minutes depending on the time of day, John. <laughs> and uh, Ben Carroll again, he's also Minister for Roads and Road Safety, said the boost would save commuters time and money, etc. So there you are. Isn't it magic how they can keep out of nowhere, they can pull these wonderful programs that are going to make everything so much better for people on the roads. It's, it's magic, Kevin. It really is. Oh, dear. It is, isn't it? And it at, is. other it times, is. at other times they say, oh, no, well, what can we do, you know? There's so much traffic on the roads and everybody wants to drive their car and it gets all congested. But then suddenly they can find these so-called wonderful fixes. Yes, and they, as, as we know, they don't, they're not sudden fixes. I mean, I, just looking at the, um, the north, Northwest Tunnel, North of, whatever that tunnel is, north, the, the, the North Tunnel, the, the road. We're talking about the North Northeast Project. That one, yeah. Yes. I mean, the, the, the government and the promoters are saying it's going to create so many jobs, it's going to save so much time mm. on your travel. It's the usual line, all those lines mm. we've heard on every freeway they've ever built, yep. Yep. they're now coming up with on this one. Yep, of course. Um, that they've they've um, never been challenged enough to uh, stop being so um, mendacious, Kevin. <laughs> yes. They 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 tell us how many jobs will be will be manufactured in the building of the thing, but they don't tell us how long those jobs last. I mean, they should be telling us about job years, really, shouldn't they? If they were if they were going to tell us, they should. But they never do. It's always just jobs. Oh, but the saving and the the saving in time and therefore yeah. in money as well. It's just it's just extraordinary. Oh, it's yeah. a wonderful oh, yeah. thing. And it and it may well be in the first year of operation, or even the first two or three years of operation, Kevin. I'll get some quite big time savings because the road will be so huge and the traffic volumes will be not much larger than they are now. But but the, as we know, there's a thing called induced traffic, which again, the Victorian bureaucracy has great difficulty in accepting um, exists and yet it's been accepted in most Western countries that it does exist, particularly with road projects. Because That's right. My regular biblical quote, John, freeways beget freeways beget freeways beget freeways. And, Thank you, Father. Um, <laughs> that's you, right. Father Healy. That's right. So, yeah, you get a couple of years of, of that, as you say, and then suddenly yeah. it's congestion yeah. and that yeah. becomes the... So the, the panacea becomes the problem. That's right. That's right. And it looks to me like it might be time for us to take a short break. It, uh, it is, John. We'll take a short break and come back and talk more about all this stuff. We will. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10 AM every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in. Okay, we're back with Kevin Healy on City Limits. We're talking to transport guru John McPherson today and uh, John. Well, so yes, so this induced traffic thing, it's, it's magical in some ways, according to the, um, according to the, the powers that be in, in Melbourne. It, it induced traffic doesn't happen. It's, it's always traffic that absolutely has to flow on the road at that time. So we must provide enough capacity you know, to, to meet all the peak hour flows. But, of course, in reality, traffic can either choose to not 
people driving cars or other vehicles can choose not to travel on the road at that time, or they can travel, choose to travel not at all, or they can choose to travel on some other mode of transport. But no, 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 we have to produce enough capacity in the road system for everybody who wants to travel by car to do it whenever they want to do it, wherever they want to do it. And, and that, of course, suits the private, <laughs> the private builders and operators of our, our road system. At least they're partially privatised. Although they're having a bit of trouble at the moment um, with the other, with the Westgate Tunnel thing, with the, mm. the companies at each other's throat in the court last week, but and and ongoing. But an interesting item in terms of all that, coming out of Paris, the Air Quality Life Index, which was um, oh, yes. air pollution cuts life expectancy for every man, woman, and child on Earth by nearly two years, according to data released that experts said showed poor air quality was the greatest risk to human health. The Air Quality Life Index said as the world raced to find a vaccine to bring COVID under control, air pollution would continue to cause billions of people to lead shorter and sicker lives across the globe. The index converts particulate air pollution, mainly from the burning of fossil fuels, into its impact on human health. It found that despite significant reductions in particulate matter in China, once one of the world's most polluted countries, the overall level of air pollution had remained stable over the past two decades. In countries such as India and Bangladesh, air pollution was so severe it cut average lifespans in some areas by almost a decade. And the, the researchers said the quality of the air many humans breathe constituted a far higher health risk than COVID-19. And while we're probably not as bad as India, we, you know, we still suffer pretty badly from air pollution, particularly caused by cars on our roads, among other things. Yeah, and we don't, we're not doing much about it either. We're, our uh, pollution control measures for the particularly vehicles on roads is, is, not, is not good. It's, it's fairly pathetic. Um, we don't require our, our vehicles to use the highest quality fuels. For instance, the diesel fuel that's used uh, in our truck fleets is, is poor quality. Um, so poor that a lot of European ca diesel cars can't, can't be sold in Australia because they can't cope with the bad fuel. Um, mm. You know, a whole, lot of, a whole lot of things like that. And diesel cars, of course, have the most dangerous particulates um, in terms of getting into your lungs and lung cancer. I have to say that as, as electric cars creep into the Australian fleet, uh, diesel cars probably are, are now receding from the fleet, that the electric cars are starting to take the role of diesel cars in a way. And, of course, electric cars are much cleaner, particularly if the fuel electricity that they use are generated by renewable uh, renewable means. It's, it's a long haul, though, because there were, oh, yeah. were 1,062,867 yeah. new vehicles sold in Australia last year, of which only 6,718 were electric. So... Yep. Six seven one eight over one oh six two <laughs> eight six seven. Yeah, pretty small percentage, but they're they're building up, I guess. Pretty, <laughs> it's pretty sad. Yes. Well, we have a federal government that's making no efforts at all. They're, they're just um, they're indifferent. So you know you can interpret their indifference to electric cars as is indifference to the health of their uh, of their population, really. And again, they're more interested in the um, profits that can be made by the big transport companies. Etc. Etc. Yeah, and electric cars, of course, will will be and would be so much healthier if they used renewable energy. Many of them now are using fossils, unfortunately. To yeah, that's what I said two minutes ago, Kevin. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
Um, uh, could I could I point out that somewhere like New Delhi, they discovered when the um, the virus hit there, and um, the traffic on the roads, you know, reduced to, by some extraordinary amount. That suddenly you could see all the way from New Delhi across the plains to the Himalayas, which nobody in New Delhi had been able to see for the last forty or fifty years. <laughs> Didn't know they existed, did they? <laughs> Right. So, you know, those sort of extraordinary things happen. It's been proved, you know, that in, in, I think even places, in even cities in North America, the uh, the, the pollution load has, has, you know, literally collapsed when the amount of traffic dropped to, the to you know, ex, to, to extraordinary levels so that they even had to admit, you know, that, that, the, um, that the, um, the virus had had one good effect that it actually improved the air quality, at least temporarily, you know, in so many cities. Yeah, and, and indeed, it is true, isn't it, that India has much stronger exhaust laws and regulations than we have. I mean, even their level of pollution's worse, but their pollution control laws are stronger than ours, aren't they, as far as cars and diesel? I really couldn't, couldn't comment on that. thought I read that somewhere, yeah. Yeah, they have lots of those little putt-putt vehicles in their cities, you know, little two-stroke Pup, pup, three, three-wheeler vehicles. Which belch out lots of rubbish. Yeah, they're, they're, I don't know. I don't imagine that they are under much control. But they are ideal for being converted to electric electric operation as well. But, I mean, you know, then the question becomes, well, do you still want a city dominated by, you know, road-based transport? You know, do you want your city completely swamped by, by vehicles, even electric vehicles? Because even electric vehicles are still going to have the issues of congestion, amongst other things, for sure, you know. And yeah, they're still, yeah. still going to be able to kill people if, if, you have, um, if you have accidents or crashes. So, you know, the, the electric car isn't, of course, the, the complete panacea at all, but, it, it, but uh, it, it is moving things in the right direction, I suppose. <laughs> but, but, of course, a, a viable public transport system is the real solution in, in cities anyway. Mm. But, of course, the sort of governments we have uh, basically run on the principle that everybody would rather be travelling by car if they could. And really, public transport is about dealing with people who, who can't travel by car. And that, of course, means that it's always, it's always going to be less than an ideal public transport system. Mm. Except in some of those really strange cities like, say, Zurich, you know, which is probably one of the, the richest cities in the world. But the, the Swiss have their own ways of doing things and they, they choose to have a very good public transport system. And, you know, even high executives in, in, in government and industry travel on the trains and trams with ordinary people. Uh, that's, that's with ordinary people, John. Ordinary people. <laughs> oh, my God. Us. Us. Oh. <laughs> good God, we can't have that here. No, they stand there in their beautiful suits on the tram, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> well, on, on pollution, by the way, with, with we're talking about pollution coming out of the, the exhaust pipes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's been a suggestion that because of COVID and the less use of cars, that, that crude oil might not get back, the global demand might not yes. get back to its peak last year. Mm-hmm. And the story I'm reading says it is a favourite theory of those wishing an early end to fossil fuel use and some others that the recovery from the coronavirus crisis will put the world on an accelerated path to cleaner energy such that consumption of oil may never return to last year's level of about 100 million barrels a day. But then a bloke called um, Feridun Fasharaki, chairman of 
respected global energy consultancy, Facts Global Energy. Well, I haven't got a lot of respect for them after what he said. But anyway, he says, nonsense. He said, nonsense, stupidity has no limits, he said. And it's definitely going <laughs> to, oil's going to last forever. He's, he's making the point. He said, um, he remains bullish on demand while acknowledging that consumption this year has been badly affected, particularly for jet fuel, petrol and diesel. Oil demand has been hit badly, but there is still huge potential for growth. Um, and and he, he goes on. He, he, he says that it's going to last. Demand um, then would grow by 7 to 8 million from 2023 to 2030, peaking by 35 at about 113 million barrels per day by 20. So he wants it to keep growing until 2035. This is when period we're supposed to be cutting it out. Oh, good. Oh, well, uh, there you go, you see. They're the optimists, who, as, as you say, who think it can go on forever. But <laughs> there's an argument, of course, that electric cars are a superior beast to a, to a petrol-powered car, and so that there will be, you know, there'll be reasons to transfer to an electric fleet that make it attractive, even, even apart from it being um, less polluting and possibly cheaper to run if you take a, a whole-of-life costs, you know, all those things. Yeah. So he he doesn't seem to feel that there'll be any pressure from the worldwide community to try and deal with, with global warming, apparently. Apparently not, but he's a respected analyst, so he, we must respect him, John. Oh, well, who says he's respected? The financial review? He, that's, what, that's what it's, yes, yes, it says that. <laughs> oh, yes, well. Ch chairman of respected global energy consultancy. That's what it says. Well, there you go. That's right. But... <laughs> Look, I, I, I don't know, Kevin, I reckon we might be getting towards um, time to finish up. Uh, close. We've got to go about five minutes, haven't we, Karina, I think? You've got ten minutes. Oh, well, Kevin. Yeah, well, there yeah, we've got plenty. Well, I wanted to bring us, John, to the fact that this, um, the road we talked about earlier, the North West Lingo, it's called. North East, Kevin, North East, yeah. North East Lingo. I'll get it right one day. The, the four local councils who were opposing it and taking them to court uh, yeah. have all backed off yes. on the grounds that they had consulted, consulted with government and they've all been given little lollies and things to mm -hmm. handouts to um, ask them to back off the court case and let the whole thing go ahead. It's a, it's a bit unfortunate, I think. Well, it would appear, Kevin, that, that this was probably the um, the result they wanted. That you know, the whole thing was was kabuki theatre. You know, everybody went through the motions in court, and uh, in the end, the um, the councils um, got what they were satisfied with, which was um, very slight. You know, cutbacks in the amount of land that's going to be um, be taken over for this uh, monstrosity, and um, some money towards uh, improved facilities. For, for their residents of various kinds. But, um, uh, <laughs> yes, but the thing's still going to be um, up to 21 lanes wide in certain points and uh, take up huge, you know, be such a massive um, incubus. And as we've mentioned before, of course, it eliminates any possibility of ever having a railway line across that, along that, that route. Mm. Yeah, well, sadly, the, the, the twenty-one lanes take what might have been a reserve for a rail line right. of the future, which was, which was, we know, was supposed to be a rail line in the first place. Yep. Well, sadly, the um, the official view has been for decades, Kevin, that the the Doncaster railway wasn't needed. That whatever transport needs Doncaster had could be met by buses, 
possibly a bus way, but buses, yes, yes. Mm. So they pretty much nailed it down now. There's no, there's no possibility of a railway, yeah. And up to 36 homes and 100 businesses will be acquired and demolished for the tollway, so people have to pay to use it anyway, while the project authority is promising to plant, this is great news, John, 30,000 trees to make up with the 16,000 to be removed. So it gets rid of 16,000 old trees and plants 30,000. That's See, that shows they're, they're environmentally sensitive. Vic Rhodes is, is of the view, Kevin, that a tree is a tree is a tree. It doesn't matter whether it's a, it's a tiny sapling replacing a full-grown tree. They're still equivalent because the little tree will grow big in 30 years, Kevin. That's right. From little things, big things grow. Exactly, yes. yes. Vic Road looks at creek valleys and sees freeways. Oh, yes. But, uh, this, this was the quote uh, about the, the jobs, etc., Northeast Link Chief Executive Duncan Elliott said the authority was pleased to have reached an agreement with Manningham Council and the other. He said the project would slash travel times for hundreds of thousands of Victorians every day. Slash times. There you are. Oh, dear. Yes, yes. Well, that's, um, that's wonderful, Kevin. Uh, it, it, of course, won't make any difference to those who are staying at home and working from home. No, that'll slash times even more. Well, yes, which is quite interesting. But I don't think the tollway company will find a way to toll those people for staying at home, although they'll be working on it, I suspect. Yeah, and, and the, of course, the other one, the Westgate Tunnel, where you know, there is some work going ahead, but the main mm. work stopped because of this pollution problem, the contaminated yeah. soil. Yes. And it's, it's, it's hit the Supreme Court here because yep. Simic and John Holland, uh, uh, they want to be reimbursed for cost blowouts and they, they want Transurban to pay it. Transurban wants the government to pay it. And so the court case is, is pounding pretty complicated. Uh, in fact, the judge last week said, I don't play chess, Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker being the senior counsel for Transurban. I don't, I'm not sure I'm the right judge for this case. It was so complicated but they're all in there fighting each other at the moment and, of course, ultimately they want the public purse to come mm. up with the money even though the contract was signed for you know, Transurban to have it done by a certain time. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Even though it was a you know, set price, set time contract, which everybody signed up, up for in good faith, when it really comes down to the crunch, they all run for the courts and, and start doing you know, a bit more kabuki theatre in the courts. <laughs> and I think in the end, it'll be, it'll, it will be the government who'll end up, you know, picking up the bills so that none of these companies oh. can scream, you know, we were doubted, we were doubted. Let's hope not, but you're, you're probably right. We'll, we'll see what happens. It's a $1 billion blowout. So, yeah, we'll have to see what happens with that one. But it's... Yeah, uh, well, that was the figure that they picked up fairly early in the day. I wouldn't be surprised if yeah. that, that, that figure's risen quite a lot. Well, one of their arguments for the government, which I'm sure they're going to use to try and pass the buck to the government, they claim that the EPA has tightened laws on the treatment of contaminated soil since they signed the contract. So that's one of the lines they're running. Yeah, well, the EPA, the EPA might say it's just um, brought, the, brought the laws into the modern, modern times, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, you know, the... The record of our EPA doesn't uh, doesn't no, inspire well, great confidence in you no, either. They've, but um, they've, had a, they've had a few uh, few lumpy uh, projects themselves over the years. Yeah. Well, they're still looking for somewhere to dump it, of course, and yeah, they haven't yeah. worked that one out yet. Well, any time you get into tunnelling on a big scale, you you, uh, you you really do have issues, and uh, 
you know, there's tunnelling for the Westgate Freeway Tunnel, whatever it's called. There's tunnelling for the Metro Rail Link. And then, of course, there's lots of tunnelling out, out with the North East Link. Um, all of them. Mm. All of them have potential to go bad in various ways. Yeah, I think we're pretty much out of time, John, but we, we probably need to have a discussion on that broad level of the fact that, you know, there really needs, there's really a need to stop all this road building to allow public transport to catch up to, you know, half a century or more of neglect, really, and that's, a, that's an argument mm. we should have at some stage, yeah. Yep. well, um, we, we're still building roads in Australia, really, the way the Americans built them in the 60s and 70s. I mean, that, that's, that, that's when they built huge amounts of motorways. And... Mm. Um, these days, the Americans are, are, are trying to work out how to maintain their motorways and things because they're, they're starting to fall down. You know, bridges collapsing and um, and uh, so on and so forth. But we still, you know, haven't even learned that there, there does come a limit about the amount of motorway you can insert into cities without destroying the city. But but also, big roads must know that every freeway attracts traffic, which becomes the congestion you've then got to solve. I mean, they. What it means mm. is there's always jobs for them ahead when that one mm-hmm. that one fills up and they've got to find a solution to it. Yeah, but that must mean I think that the current situation where traffic levels have gone down, and I, I and I take with a grain of salt their claim that they've only gone down seventeen percent, because I suspect in peak hour they've gone down a lot more. Yeah. Oh, I would think heaps more because I, as I've told you before, I. I cross Sydney Road every morning to get to go and get yeah. the papers, yeah. and I can almost I can almost walk out now without even looking. <laughs> Whereas most mornings, most mornings there's streams of traffic in you know in normal yeah. times, streams of traffic in both directions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it should be a lesson to them to learn that things can change. You know, the world does not, you know, just just require more and more cars on the roads. You know, year by year, things can change. And governments, of course, yes. should be asking the questions, should we be investing our big money in more roads? What about, as you say, other forms of transport and other needs of the community? Yep, and I think we're pretty much out of time, John, aren't we? Um, but we'll, yeah, I think we are, um, but yeah. Look, thanks for, uh, thanks for all that again this morning, John. We'll follow it up again next month. And okay. I'll let you, look, thank Karina for doing a wonderful job because without her, we'd never get to air. Yeah, no, no, Corinna, thank you for keeping us on the air this year. We, we do appreciate it. We really do. And, um, yeah, so everybody stay safe. Okay, and next week we'll be talking about energy-type issues. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.